So I'm standing in one of my favorite places in Tapeport, which is between the Carahan Park on my left and Tensmuir Forest on my right. And I'm just standing at the top of the seawall, looking out towards the mouth of the Tay. And the view today is spectacular. It's sunny, windy, but sunny. And I can see all the mud floods are exposed by the tide, lots of seabirds, lots of wildlife. Splendid. But what's really intriguing me right now is these weird crescent-shaped structures that are sitting just about 10 meters in front of me in the mud flood and weird bits of vegetation between them and the seawall. I wonder whether any of the passers-by are going to be able to help me. Hello, my name is Kashka and welcome to Plant Voices podcast from Tapeport Community Garden where we tell local stories about gardening, food, nature and climate change. I've just stopped a couple of people and uh, I was wondering whether you know what these mysterious crescent-shaped structures are in the mud. Well, well, my guess, because we were talking about this earlier on, my guess is they were for shipbuilding and for bending wood. I think they're to cause a little trap for sea, uh, for shellfish. That's what I think. Do, do you know what they are? Well, I'll be honest, I'd never noticed them before. You pointed them out. I don't definitively know what they are, no. I would guess there's something to do with the Second World War. And today is going to be all about revealing the mystery behind them. So I'm just going to continue with my walk now. Beautiful. I can hear the gulls. I'm on the way to um, see Clay Maynard, who uh, will be able to tell us a little bit more about the mysterious goings-on at the bank of the Tay. So, very excited about this. I think this must be the place. Bit of buzz. Yes. Oh, and oh, hello. Hello. Can you get down? Well, she's not coming in if you're going to be like that. Go over there. I'm just going to park myself up here. Um, and I was just sort of uh, talking about what I can see standing on the on the oh, okay. bank of the Tay, and you know, looking towards the the mouth of the Tay, and uh, there were these mysterious structures, um, these sort of crescent shaped things, yes. just yeah. you know, ten meters of. Uh, of the bank, uh, and then can you tell me a bit more about those? What what these? Okay, those. Are? Yeah, of course. The structures are bioengineering products. Oh. They're uh, specifically known as bio rolls. <laughs> They're used in river engineering for soft river engineering. I'm Dr. Claire Maynard, the University of St Andrews. I am a research fellow, and I work alongside the Sediment Ecology Research Group in the Scottish Oceans Institute. 
So for many years, I've been trialing to find out, experimenting to find out whether we can actually restore our fringe salt marshes. This project is called Green Shores, uh, Restoring Nature for Coastal Flooding and Erosion. So actually, just wanted to double check that salt marshes, where can you find them? Um, Estuaries. A good way of looking at it is you've got your river system coming down and then your sand dunes at the mouth of the river system as it reaches the sea. That is a great example. It really is. So if you go upriver, you get all the fine sediments washing down from the upland areas and a lot of fresh water, the Tay especially having uh, the greatest volume of fresh water of any river in Great Britain, comes down the Tay. And that is um, where you'll find all your freshwater marshes. So your true reed beds. Think of Invergowrie up there. Very, very muddy. And that mud is made of very fine sediments. Mm -hmm. When you get to the mouth of the estuary is when all the sand, the bigger coarse grains, are being washed in by the tide um, from offshore banks. That's where you get all your sand dune habitat. More exposed and it's that exposure um, that allows, and, and greater tidal energy allows the bigger grains of sand to be deposited there. So that's where you get your sand dune habitat. In the middle are salt marshes, essentially. Mm-hmm. They have to cope with both sides of the equation here. So they're dealing with the energy from tidal water. They're dealing with the salinity mm-hmm. from the tidal water, but they're dealing with freshwater deluge coming down, um, temperature gradients. So they're, they're really an in-between. They're a really wonderful habitat because you're getting a whole range of freshwater and saltwater species so in there. And quite yeah. rich yeah. and quite unique. I, mean, I remember um, you mentioned that there was... Very, very little in Scotland. Scotland. Yeah, Scotland's uh, coastline is mostly rocky. So where England's coastline has about oh, 35% of it is salt marsh, uh, Scotland's is about 3%. We have very little salt marsh. But just as in England and in anywhere else in the world, it's all where we live. That's part of the problem here. Yeah, because there's been people in the, on the mouth of the Tay for millennia. Well, rivers with our transport systems. Yeah. And that's where the rich, fertile land is for farming. So that's where we've inhabited and that's where our salt marshes are. So when you're walking across the East Common, there's a salt marsh underneath there. Yeah, it, yeah. I, I have a picture. You've seen the picture of the intertidal when there was cows grazing on it. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it used yeah. to be used for grazing as well. They played golf on the salt marsh in St Andrews. Oh, there you go. Obviously, yes, yeah, yes, exactly. They're really cool environments, but they're in decline. Um, they're in decline largely because of the stuff we've done to it. But now that's been exacerbated by climate change. I'm Paula. I'm from Romania, and uh, together with a bunch of other international people, we are doing um, volunteer with the Scottish Wildlife Trust in Dundee for a year. Yeah, for, uh, for, for me, me it's important because uh, first you know uh, the value of local nature and how can that local nature be applied for lo- problems that you have related with what human has done to the environment. So. Scotland has two different types of salt marsh. We have the thriving one, which is sea club rush, and it's a swamp type of salt marsh. Most countries, certainly as you go further south and into the Mediterranean, wouldn't recognise that as a salt marsh. They'd think of that as a transitional, more freshwater, upriver type of marsh. But it's highly salt tolerant. And because Scotland gets so much rainfall, and we get an awful lot of groundwater flow as well, 
that kind of swamp salt marsh actually, especially in the Tay, manages to grow a lot further downstream than you'd expect. So it actually works alongside the other type of salt marsh, which is more Mediterranean, if you like. It's a grassland, and that's salt marsh grass, Puxanellia maritima. That's the one that's in trouble. That's the one that we've been building on and polluting for years. They're a very precious habitat for two particular reasons for me, although there are more reasons that they're functional for society, but the two for me are just for their own wildlife habitat benefits, full of very special salt adapted plants that if you didn't have salt marshes, you wouldn't have those plants. So they're a very rich treasure trove of biodiversity. But on top of all of that, wherever there is salt marsh, you get less coastal flooding and erosion. Wherever there isn't salt marsh, there is more coastal flooding and erosion. It is that simple. We've been developing along the boundaries and edges of our estuaries for hundreds of years and as a result there's hardly any salt marsh left. So my PhD study was essentially, can we put it back? Is it worthwhile putting back? We know that we can relinquish land and let the tide come back in to, for example, Tayport Common. We could do that and it would become a salt marsh again. But Tayport Common has a lot of value for the local community. Nobody would want that really to be a salt marsh at the moment. It is an old dump site, and inside that common, we don't know what's there. So it's not prudent for us to actually return that to the sea. It wouldn't be wise. There might be pollution in there. A seawall to protect it from the future of coastal flooding and erosion, bearing in mind that sea level rise is real, it is happening, and it is going to get worse. It's too expensive at the moment. So the council asked me, can you use your experiments? It's very much research and development to put back the salt marsh. So I'm, I'm Quentin, uh, I'm from France. I actually love this project because I, I really like the way she deals with research because usually research is about reading a very complex article on a very complex subject. And here you really understand what you're doing because it's concrete. And uh, I like seeing people involved. We see uh, Scottish people because we are uh, an international group and it's, it's always good to, to interact with the local community. Over the years of my PhD, I noticed that the swamp salt marsh was increasing. So that was where we realised that we could bring that species into play. Nobody had thought about trying it before in salt marsh restoration schemes. So we started planting that. It all started in the Eden estuary and out of 12 sites on the Eden, eight were highly successful, two were quite successful. But we also realised with all that work that we had two more issues. One, we don't have enough salt marsh. You can't rob Peter to pay Paul, so we don't have enough salt marsh. We can't go around digging up our native salt marsh to plant elsewhere. It's hugely labour intensive. You need a lot of volunteers on board. But secondly, you have a high washout rate. We have storms and until those salt marshes and those transplants have actually integrated underground, then they're vulnerable to just washing out. And so you could do all that work in the summer just to have it all wash away in the winter. So this project that I'm working on now, and that's in the Tay, and also in the Dornoch Firth, um, we're trying to address those issues. So Fife Leader have funded a polytunnel where I'm actually growing salt marsh transplants, and then we harden them. They're very easy to grow. We then harden them to salt water, and then they get planted out. 
So if you stand on that edge, if you actually look at some of the salt marsh, it's thriving and other parts aren't. So it's a salt marsh uh, that's thriving, it's sort of on the right-hand side towards Tensmuir, and that's the... Swamp, swamp salt, salt marsh. marsh. Um, that one's sea club rush. Okay. So it's actually a rush. Yeah. It's yeah. like a reed bed. That's the stuff that's been planted in th- that's uh, been between planting. the barrels and the bank. Basically, it's, it's spreading anyway. We've speeded up the process and we're using it. What we've seen on the Eden and we're hoping we'll see on the Tay is we're using it as a bit of a buffer to see if the native salt marsh behind the actual grass salt marsh, salt marsh grass. Yeah, which is sort of flat, humpy sort of yeah, thing that's yeah. quite fragmented when you exactly. look out. It's quite fragmented just in front of the yes. wall. Yeah. And what we've seen on the Eden is that by planting the sea club rush in front of it is you can make that mend. So they will end up in a bit of competition together, but you will end up with both. So again, you're increasing this diversity and you're ticking the box of actually reducing the flooding on behind. So that's the ultimate plan. And the bio rolls, as I said right at the start, they are used in river engineering to soften river banks and such like. They've never been trialled on shorelines. We're trying to reduce the washout rate in the winter with them. Mm-hmm. So it's in a series of experiments is what people are seeing. Ah, okay. So what you're, yes, yeah, is that is not how it would actually look eventually. Okay. At the moment, it's just a series of experiments. Um, so you'll, you've got one plot that are bio-rolls and plants behind them, mm-hmm. and another plot, bio-rolls with no plants behind them, because it could be that we don't, if, if you just actually protect with those bio-rolls, the plants will naturally colonise the mm-hmm. area, so mm-hmm. you don't need to bother um, raiding them, the yeah. native mm-hmm. marsh. Um, and then there's also a plot with nothing, because that's my control. Yep. And then there's also a plot of just plants and no biorolls, because maybe the biorolls aren't needed after all. Yep. And that's replicated three times. Yep. If it all works, then we will have... A, it's a long process. This doesn't happen overnight. Mm. So again, but, uh, you, the first planting was, remind me, 2017 or 18? 18. It was 2018, just last, year. last year. And I can actually. You see can see, it's doing really well. I know. Plants volunteers came out yeah. last year to yeah. help out. And um, yeah, you can see them coming yeah. along, which is, which is great. So on the Eden, some of my plots have got 300% expansion. I mean, they're, they're, they've really taken off. So my name's Dave Shepherd. I work for Scottish Natural Heritage at our Cooper office at Elmwood College and I'm an area officer so I've been uh, working with Claire Maynard from the university on the salt marsh project on Eden Estuary and here at Tayport and I've come out on Saturday as a volunteer and it's really good to be involved in something that's helping the nature of the on the coastline and also helping uh, protect protect the land people's houses and jobs and businesses um, it's a really nice combination and getting muddy and being out in the sunshine or rain or whatever the weather throws at us today it's quite nice isn't it it's a perfect <laughs> so perfect day <laughs> yeah perfect day the best thing is coming back uh, and seeing the work that's been done several years ago and where the salt marsh plants are gradually getting stronger and stronger and, and doing a job so you can see that it's all going to be worthwhile in the long run. Great, thank you very much. That's brilliant. Okay.
what you were just talking about with us using that space, that's impact on habitat destruction because we do take away space from nature, nature um, yeah. physically. Yeah. But as you say, climate change is a bit of an issue now. And can you yeah. tell me more about um, you know how climate change is already affecting salt marshes sure. or how it's going to affect them in the future? So we've got more rainfall that we, we know. There is more rainfall in winter and we think that that's why the swamp salt marsh is expanding. Mm-hmm. Climate change is also increasing sea levels and as sea levels increase, so your high tide mark gets higher. Uh, so there's going to be more energy, higher waves, more frequent storms, etc., all pounding our land. So the more of a buffer zone we have, the better. Whether that's rocky shores, salt marsh habitat, or sandy habitat, it's it doesn't really matter. We just need that buffer zone more and more. Another big issue with climate change, and salt marshes especially, is of course their carbon content. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So salt marshes sequester... So that basically just means that they trap and store more uh, and turn over more carbon than any other habitat. And this, is, and this is carbon dioxide, sucking out yes. the carbon dioxide. That's the problem exactly. with... Exactly. Atmospheric carbon yeah. dioxide. And it's fixing it. Fixed in the soil, yes. If we restore our salt marshes, we're putting back a carbon store. So that's why it's so important. Salt marshes can sequester carbon more effectively and more permanently than any other habitat. And that the values typically are one to two orders of magnitude greater than terrestrial forests. So the productivity in the salt marshes is the main contributor. And as you can see, it says here, especially in young and actively growing marshes. And that's where my work comes in, because the very young marshes, as they're growing, all of that lovely carbon is getting sequestered into that plant and trapped and locked in the sediment. And it doesn't get uh, sort of uh, then released to the atmosphere. Not so easily. easily. Yes, exactly. In the forest where carbon sort of cycles There's a cycle, yeah. Yeah. The cycle's much lower in um, salt marsh soils because it's generally quite colder. So the microbial activity isn't as high, which is normally during the cycling. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. it's not as high. So it's staying put in one place for longer. So this is part of the Blue Carbon Project, Project, is it? Which you can find online, yes. And that's looking at uh, these ecosystems across the world, not locally. Yes, yes. Yeah, very much so, yeah. Professor David Patterson, Professor Bill Austin at the University of St Andrews, they're involved with a seaside project. It's called Sea and then Side, S-I-D-E. Mm-hmm. And they are measuring the carbon potential around all of the salt marshes in Scotland. And in relation to my work, a PhD student, Ben Taylor, um, he actually measured the carbon content of my sites. Mm-hmm. So much more local, much more specific. And the findings were excellent. The findings were were, were that this is beneficial. So we're saving the world. Here. I'm saving the planet one plant at a time. <laughs> I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it. Because of the wildlife value, because of the soft coastal defence value, because of the carbon value, I think it's worth it. I really do. And something that I've discovered that I really, this is kind of the last thing I could say because it's a plea for volunteers, is 
how much fun we all have. It always surprises me. It's cold, it's muddy, it's wet. It can be backbreaking work because you're dragging heavy loads of very sodden, muddy, wet plants. These are not light. It's extreme gardening is one thing we like to do. It's like an extreme form of gardening. But the volunteers all leave with big smiles on their faces. They get muddy. They love it. We've spanned all age groups now. I've had six-year-olds out there right up to, I think last year there was a 78-year-old, and he, by the way, put us all to shame. I love the school kids especially because they're always so enthusiastic. They're really, they want to be positive about the world. They love being positive about nature. And so they really get stuck into this kind of work. So I think that more than the wildlife is what has begun to be my goal is to work with the volunteers. Thank you so much for talking to me and um, <laughs> taking your time to explain. I know you're very, very busy, oh, so it's great. Thank you for listening to the Plant Voices podcast. For more Tapeworth Community Garden stories and for information on how to get involved, visit our website on www.tapeworthgarden.org.